I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design, with a special conversation with Dan Brun, a fascinating architect. This interview was recorded live from the West Edge Design Fair in the programming lounge presented by Convo by Design and designed by Julia Wong. This conversation was really fun for me. Dan is a very interesting guy with a unique perspective on architecture and how he bends and blends ideas to fit the lives of his clients. Dan and I spoke about modern ideas in architecture and studied two of his California projects, the Flip Flop House in Venice and the Bridge House in Hancock Park. Dan was raised in Tel Aviv, and his love of and passion for the Bauhaus architecture in which he grew up is evident in his work. His designs are expressive and unique, but the first goal is to be of use to those living within. The flip-flop project, as you'll hear, is about privacy in a public setting and display of art, while using the light and views without the ability to close the space off from public view or public inspection. The Bridge House is a masterwork of ingenuity and spatial craftwork. Both show how Brune approaches his craft. While we're talking about craft and skill, Convo by Design is presented by Snyder Diamond. Always first with what's next in the kitchen and bath. That's the philosophy of second-generation president Russ Diamond. His travels take him across the planet looking for the appliances, fixtures, and finishes for the kitchen and bath that allow designers and architects to create amazing spaces for their clients. Products that make life better, like those from Mila. I had a chance to tour the Mila showroom and was shown all of the products that Mila has to offer, from coffee machines to ovens, ranges, hoods, combo steam ovens, washers, dryers all imbued with Mila's Immerbesser philosophy, hard-coded into the very DNA of this family-owned and operated company since its founding in 1899. Mila products are made to serve and built to last. They possess the form and function you expect, and they were created with the future in mind. The technology integrated into these appliances are tremendous, and they were designed to work together seamlessly, all to make life easier. Now, combine these world-class products with the amazing Snyder Diamond service, and you have a powerful partnership. Find out more at any of the three Los Angeles area Snyder Diamond showrooms, and check out some fantastic limited-time offers and promotions from Mila while you're there. You can also learn more at SnyderDiamond.com. Before we get into this conversation with Dan Brune, I want to thank you for listening to Convo by Design and invite you to join the conversation. You can find us at Convo by Design on Twitter and at Convo by Design, this time with an X, on Facebook and Instagram. You can also find videos from these conversations on our YouTube channel. Again, search Convo by Design and you'll find over 120 videos from some of your favorite guests. This is architect Dan Brune, live from the West Edge Design Fair. My name is Josh Cooperman. I host and publish Convo by Design, a podcast for the interior design and architecture space. This is our, gosh, I want to say it's our fourth or fifth year working with West Edge. So if you've been here before, nice to see you again. If this is your first time out, welcome. Really excited about this. Convo by Design is presented by Snyder Diamond. This stage was... Uh, designed by Julia Wong and Julia Wong Interiors. We're thrilled to be here. The, the next conversation we're having today, and by the way, just so you know, this is kind of like the anti-panel, right? If you listen to Convo by Design or if you go download them, you can get it anywhere podcasts are available. It's free. 
Um, what you'll hear is more intimate conversations, less, uh, less formal in nature. So this is just kind of like us having a conversation in the living room, right? Um, this one's called Made LA Modern. This is Dan, Dan Brun. Hello. Yeah. So if you're not familiar with Dan and his work, Dan founded his LA-based firm, Dan Brun Architecture, in 2005, widely published. Um, Dan's work includes all retail, hospitality, cultural, and residential products, projects, rather. Here's, you're going to, I could read the, the bio, but I'd rather talk it through because Dan's a really interesting guy. Um, we were talking about sort of the aesthetic of, of modern, modern in LA. You hear a lot about modern and a lot about contemporary. We're going to talk about the structure and, and the building of modern, but also the idea of contemporary and modern and what really what that means and it's really interesting because Dan and I had a conversation before this we, we were talking about this Bauhaus revival right and that's that's something that's personal to you and your experience in Tel Aviv let's let's just sort of back up with the with the why and then we'll get to the why now perfect so uh, my background is actually from Tel Aviv I uh, was born there, raised there, uh, moved here in the mid-80s. I was fairly young. But, uh, you know, a lot of people, as you mentioned, talk about Bauhaus design, modernism. And in essence, I got to live through it. And for all of you who don't know, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it has the largest amount of Bauhaus buildings in the world. So my grandparents' house, my parents' house was what people envisioned today, you know, a free open plan, sliding glass doors, terrazzo flooring, indoor-outdoor living, the same thing as everybody's kind of seeking today. I was, you know, going day by day doing that. And then I had a big shock coming to Los Angeles, and all of a sudden, you know, we're in this Spanish, quote, style, whatever, whatever house that's super dark and has no flow and no indoor-outdoor relationship. And I was like, why does this have to exist? But you know what's interesting about that is why does it have to exist? Because this is L.A. and that's what we do, right? We make stuff up. You come out here to reinvent yourself. You make all of your mistakes. And then you learn from it. Isn't that really what L.A. architecture is all about? Absolutely. But actually, that's what gives you the opportunity to also, uh, and why I do practice here, is because you could do anything and anything that you want to do, and it's, the door's open for you, right? So it's just... It's uh, completely kind of a bohemian, wild west world, you know, so it doesn't have the heritage. Well, it is, and I want to I touch on that because I, I like going from back to front, right? So we can start with where it all started and get to where we are now. I was reminded, I was really looking forward to this conversation. Um, I was reminded last night I was listening to NPR and they were talking about uh, the dingbats. Do you all know what the dingbats are? Have you ever seen those apartments that have the soft first story? Yeah. The, the soft first story? Yeah. And they're carports. Mm -hmm. And then you, you live over. And every time there's an earthquake, those are like the first ones that fall down because they're structurally not... Not sound. They're not sound. Yeah. But you know what? Someone came to L.A. in the 50s and 60s and said, hey, what a great... Look, we could put our cars underneath. And it, it, I mean, it functionally, it works too, right? I mean, you take over the space, you put the car and you live right above it. It makes sense. Yeah, so you got the dingbats, you got the, you got the googies, and when, we, when you talk mar modern architecture, it's hard not to talk about the googies if you've ever driven by a Norms or you've seen those car washes. I used to go to uh, the Norms, and there used to be a ships on La Cienega Boulevard, that was where we'd go with my, with my dad. And it's still there, yeah. and it's still there. Now, 
Some of them survive. Some of them are being torn down. Um, there's a Chase Bank on Sunset. That's a, that's, right. a, that's a googie, and that's going away. Um, but to your, to your point, kind of, that's... Why does that have to exist? I don't know. I mean, one of, you know, uh, we're working right now on a project that's actually going to be net zero, right? And everybody's talking about uh, ecologically friendly homes and, and the future forward of how to be conscious about anything. And people ask, well, how are you getting there? And, you know, we live in this climate that's actually very feasible to get there. And that's why I question, why does this exist today? Like, why would somebody in their right mind uh, hire... Uh, not A lot of people don't hire architects, but if they do, hire somebody and then end up building this palazzo-style thing that makes no sense in today's climate yeah. and uh, environment when you could build something that actually does make sense and you could have better living style through it. Okay, so the next step from there, you've got minimal, you've got purposeful, you've got small... From small, you go to minimalist. Minimalist doesn't necessarily mean small, though. No. It doesn't. Uh, no, I mean, minimalist can mean... I mean, you could have a huge space that's minimalist. You know, it could be this big white box, and you, you basically... Uh, you know, it's a big gallery, and that could be minimalist. But to me, uh, you know, it goes back to another principle from the Bauhaus, which is less is more, and to figure out how to be minimal in your footprint. So... Uh, yeah, there's a certain size and ethos to everything. And so to me, that's what minimalist means. And it's about uh, editing and reducing and reducing and reducing and getting down to nothing. And if you think about it, if you've done, you know, like your high school or college essays and you talk about a five paragraph essay, you know, you have your thesis, your three, your three paragraphs and a conclusion. The same thing goes for any good design. And so if you're able to minimalize it into nothing, and that's to me where architecture or design wins. That's where it wins. And so now we've gone from macro, let's go to micro. Let's, let's talk about flip-flop. Right. Tell me about the project. Tell them about the project, because okay. I, I, I love this thing. So uh, actually, the first residential project that I did in Los Angeles uh, happened out of pure happenstance. And I think my career is based on that. There's a lot of things that happened. I was at the right place at the right time. And so I had just completed a showroom up in San Francisco, Bay Area, and uh, the client uh, wasn't hiring a photographer for this one project. And I was down here in L.A. with a uh, portfolio, at Sammy's camera, and showing the clerk. I was renting equipment, lighting equipment. What do I need to use? Blah, blah, blah. And as that was happening, um, this, my future client walked up to the counter and interrupted. And I was like, why would somebody be interrupting me right now? You know, and I'm having this great conversation. And he turns to her and he says, hey you're looking for an architect, meet Dan. And this is one of the reasons why I love LA. You know, you have these great opportunities and this just can happen. And uh, so sure enough, I flipped through some things. She says, well, what have you done before? And, you know, showed her some things. Well, we own a piece of property on the beach in Venice. Virgin land, by the way. Never built on. We never even had to tear down anything. And uh, she said, well, I'm looking to build a house with my husband. Uh, and all we really want are... Uh, a sh is a shower that has views to the outside, but you still have the privacy, and uh, balconies that are like wrap around. So I'm like, wow, some of these language uh, things that she describes are completely the Bauhaus, the way I grew up. And so the project was born out of just those two uh, necessities. And uh, then the name Flip Flop comes from 
actually, you know, if you can imagine you have a house that's on the beach and you want to have as many views as possible, so you have to have glass, right? At the same time, you want to have privacy, and I wish we had imagery to show, but it, and at the same time, we have, uh, they collect a lot of photos, like a gallery. And so we created these walls that essentially flip-flop, and they're, they're pivot walls, they're 10 feet by 10 feet, and they open, and the house essentially breathes and lets air in and out, and you're able to get the views out, and at the same time have place to store art. So it solved everything, and it was just, you know, it started DBA. Now, this is a good time to point out, because someone's probably going to ask, you're all thinking, well, why isn't he showing us the images on the screens that are to our right and our left, right? You're nodding. You were thinking that. Because I'm a podcast producer, and I produce for audio, and because we also have a YouTube channel, and what we're doing is we film this, and then I will also be following up with videos that show exactly what Dan and I are talking about as we're talking about it, sort of like micro case studies, so that you guys can follow along when you go back and watch this on YouTube. The concept of flip-flop, love this because you juxtapose so many different concepts against each other. It's a showcase for art, but it's a personal residence. It's public in nature. I mean, it's about as public as you can get. Yeah, and we actually tried to be more public than that. So the original idea, it has these uh, four pivot walls, if, if you're thinking 10 feet by 10 feet. They all spin 180 degrees. The original idea was to paint the inside, and then when you flip it 180 degrees, you have art given back to the street. Uh, being that it is in Venice, and it, it does have that heritage of an art culture, we wanted to do that. It became prohibitively impossible due to uh, building codes. Literally, and that killed it. What, what, what were the biggest, and I think this is important because Venice is a great example of L.A. in general. The, the rules, the regulations, as you're trying, we talk a lot about experimentation. And this is a lot of experimentation. Well, this is a major problem. Yeah. Well, and you know, it, it, you know, we started the conversation by saying, and I said, you know, it's the Wild West. And that's how my career really got started. It's not so much anymore, and one of the one of my biggest hurdles is actually uh, getting progressive architecture built in the city of Los Angeles. Uh, the building department, the planning department, the neighborhood councils, the California Commission. Um, these are all things that really hinder progressive architecture, and they're continually trying to come up with ways to define what we can and what we can't do. And it's, uh, it's not necessarily beneficial to the neighborhood. And we're trying to spearhead that. But like right now, I don't think I'll ever take on another uh, Venice project. It just doesn't happen. They just don't get realized. Is it like childbirth? Maybe you're still a little I too... I don't know about childbirth. Maybe you're still a little too close to... Well, fair point. Fair point. I've heard about it. Maybe you're a little too close to it. Because when you have a canvas like that... And I, I mean, listen, in L.A., nimbyism is... It's big. It's huge. But it's, it's no different than any other major metropolitan city with history. Well, uh, it's very litigious. And uh, we have uh, an, an, an amazing amount of rules that are overlapping. And actually, we have one of the worst planning codes that does exist in the nation. And part of the reason is that it's continually updated, but not rethought. We really need to uh, remove and restart Otherwise, the city is just going to be a disaster. And, and it's one of the things that actually I'm excited about L.A. because 
uh, it is, I say it's like, it's like an onion in any city, right? So you have layers and layers and layers. And I feel like LA is only on its first, second peel. Uh, but if we don't get ahead of it, there's going to be even more disaster. So interesting along those lines. Venice is obviously Santa Monica, obviously. Any beach community really is, is incredibly appealing because of the, the territory. The Hollywood Hills, very appealing. L.A. now, especially with the, the, the new structure that's going into Inglewood, people are talking about Compton and Inglewood in, in ways that we haven't... We talked. never imagined before, right? Yeah, so for you, does that present an opportunity? Is that attractive to you? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I started my office, and it wasn't about you know, creating homes for people. It's about creating the built environment for inhabitants, for, for civilians. So one of the reasons why I did choose to come back to L.A. is because I felt that it is an open canvas and there is all these opportunities to, uh, to support the city in a positive way. So, yeah, it has nothing to do with, you know, we don't have to find uh, the richest neighborhoods. We have to find the neighborhoods that need our assistance in a way. And every time you find a new neighborhood, it's going to come with its own set of challenges. Correct. It's going to come with its own Correct. set of issues. Yeah. It's and, an, it's, and yeah, and by the, by the way, now that I figured out Venice, I'm like, peace out, I'm out of here because I just won't touch it anymore because you, you, you can't do it. And so what's interesting is when people come to hire an architect, they ask, oh, have you ever worked in this municipality before? Do you have experience in this? You don't necessarily need to. What would be a better question is how, how many different types of projects were you able to get off the ground successfully? Okay, but wait a minute. I'm, I'm calling BHS here for, for a minute because here's the thing. You say, I'm not going to do it because it can't be done, but you just did it. And, and you did it, and wait, let me finish, and you did it remarkably well, and you, you finished with exactly what it is that you wanted. So it's not because it can't be done, it's because you don't want to deal with the headaches anymore, and that's fair. You as, an, as a creative, you as an artist, you can say that. It's not that it can't be done, and I, I say that to say this. Right. With, a new, with a new territory, every new area, they're going to have their own nimbyists, Absolutely. Have, There's right? no getting away from it. Uh, and I enjoy, maybe maybe my take is that I, I've done it five times in Venice. And uh, it's kind of, a, at this point, in order to solve the problem, it's become a formula. I need to do A, B, C, D, and here we go, okay, and we're see, done. See, now I get that. And that makes, that makes sense to me. Because I, I don't, I, it kind of feels to me like you would be um, kind of setting yourself up but selling yourself short like it can't be done because you did do it. Yes, but also what's interesting is when I did do it, and not that I'm old, but when I did do it, uh, let's say, for example, the neighborhood council saw me as an aspiring architect or they saw me as somebody young and let's give him a shot. Now now the, the neighborhood councils look at me like, oh, well, he's done this before and he's just a developer, even though we don't do developer-style homes. But that's, so that's why I'm saying maybe somebody else knew could do it we are given the, the, the red light. See, that I get, and I think that that's really interesting. You're established. In a way, uh, there. Yeah. Okay, so let's shift gears then from that to the bridge house. Yes. Because I love this thing. And when we talk about being a, a piece of land is obviously the, the canvas for, the, for what you're creating. Right. And not every canvas is going to be perfect. And you're going to have things that you have to build through and over and turning liabilities into assets, this is one of those. You, you built over a brook. Yeah, turning liabilities into assets, I love that, actually, because that's, uh, uh, as the city is becoming more and more complicated, 
there is you're not going to find that piece of flat land that's you know 60 by 80 let's build if we're talking residential let's just build that that's not going to happen so in this condition uh it's a piece of land that's 60 feet wide 210 feet long 260 feet long and there's literally a brook running down the middle and it's a natural brook coming from griffith park it runs down uh underneath highland pops up for a few properties in this neighborhood, which is called Brookside, which is so awesome that it's actually a genuine name in a city of fakes, as we talked about at the beginning. Uh, and so literally the house is Brookside. And uh, the house itself is 20 feet wide and approximately 210 feet long. And uh, nobody's built anything like that there. You know, everybody's taken on, uh, let's build, let's say, a three-story house in the front of the property. And the property then looks back towards the rest. Here... I wanted to marry uh, the built environment with the beautiful nature that we have here. So the house, no matter what room you're at, you have this connection indoor, outdoor, indoor, outdoor, indoor, outdoor. Take me through the process of walking the property for the first time. It was Jurassic Park. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, that's what it looked like to me. It, feel, it felt like, well, there was somebody that lived there and it was the second owner and the second owner bought it after like the first year the house was built in the 40s. That was what was existing there, and uh, nobody took care of the property. And I remember finding it, and the way I found it is I actually live across the street. The neighbor that lives next to this house invited me over, and she said, oh, you come check out our yard. And again, I'm thinking, big deal, it's the same yard as I have, it's just across the street. But all of a sudden, it gave me like one of these aha moments. You know, I felt like a cartoon, you rub your eyes, and, you know, like, what am I seeing? This, is, this can't be real. This... It's in the center of Los Angeles, essentially, if you think about it, like Highland and Wilshire, and all of a sudden you have 15,000 square feet of lush land with a brook running down the middle. Uh, I didn't know what to do with myself, and all I could think of was, I need to find out a way to get this property. And uh, so I'm living across the street, and the house next to this neighbor is where Bridge House is located, and um, the person, uh, I befriended the caretaker, and there you go, years down the line. Okay, you just went from, ye- there you go, years down the line to a... To a it's that simple. It's that <laughs> Was there, did you encounter any resistance? Uh, no. Uh, what's interesting is that, okay, so as I'm doing this project and we're starting, originally it wasn't supposed to be a bridge house. Originally it was supposed to be the existing house, everything looks the same from the front, adding something towards the back. And the idea was because it, it's not in a historic neighborhood. Hancock Park, just north of it, is considered a historic preservation ordinance overlay zoning. This is not, uh, even though now they're trying to pass that. Uh, but I still would want to mesh within my neighborhood. So next to this house, there's the two houses are about 35 feet tall on either end. And so our idea was to keep the same thing and not add to it and just go to the back. And then I was connected to a company called Bone Structure, which is the, the new structural system that's uh, used to build the home. And it's uh, really revolutionary, and it's a kit of parts. Uh, literally, uh, on every five feet, you end up with a column and a steel, and it's 90% recycled. Really, really cool, and it's all erected using uh, just uh, mechanical connections, no welding. So then I came up with the idea of the bridge house, and what I liked about it was that it's only one story tall, and so it doesn't... Uh, you can't see it from the street. Like, it, it's 14 feet from the street and it, next to the houses that are about 35 feet tall. Now, interestingly, in terms of resistance, 
while I started the project, one of my Venice projects was about to get uh, what's called an ICO, Interim Control Ordinance. An Interim Control Ordinance is very, very, very scary for any homeowner. And this is something that a council person and a mayor could pass overnight without public votes. And it could basically mean that for any property that you own, you could essentially build a certain percentage of land. So it could be anywhere 50%, 35%, 25%. It changes. It varies by zone and by zip code. And uh, what we were finding out is that Venice was going to get one of these ICOs. So luckily, I have some awesome clients that have great connections, and we're talking to the mayor's office. And uh, I'm getting reassurance that the ICO is difficult to pass. And don't worry, there's nothing happening in Venice. Famous last words. Yeah, don't worry. Yeah, it's one of my biggest pet peeves, by the way. So then uh, I, uh, as I'm having this very frank conversation... I hear that, wait a minute, there might be something happening at Brookside. And I'm like, oh, no way. This is crazy. I'm, you know, I'm starting a project. I live there. I have no notification. So I scramble to get the permits done. And yes, lo and behold, we were ahead of the curve. But if I had not had that conversation, the whole project would have been on hold for about 18 months. And as a landowner, you're like, what? How, how could you even do that? So that's one thing we, we, we got through, and I'm very, very lucky. It's scary. If you, had, if you had it to do over again, what would you have done differently? Anything? It's a very unique project in the sense that we are uh, the developers for the project themselves, ourselves, and it's a, it's a home that's... I'm building it for myself, and I'm building it as a, as a showpiece. And... Um, it's a way to share a story and to kind of like, okay, if everybody's familiar with the case study movement in Los Angeles, you know, it was an idea of how to push design and building technologies forward. So that's how Bridge House is. So for every day that we're doing this and not completing the project, there's new technologies. So if I have to go back and say that I have any regrets, I don't have any regrets and I don't have anything that I would necessarily change, but it's a consistent living organism in a way. So there's always going to be something else to add. And I always say that about design, no matter what. So I let it go. So I, once I start design, you, you kind of put it in a, in a box and say, move forward. So no, I'm, I'm, I'm completely happy with the project. And it's funny because it's not funny. It's true. When, when I first saw this house, it, it reminded me of Waterfall. And it did because the way it's positioned the whole house is about positioning. Right. And I'm interested when you put this together, I, I'd like them to hear more about this too because when we were talking, we were talking about the good bones and the bone structure of this property, that, this house that you built. Between the structure itself, the windows in particular um, that you added in later, just everything that went into this, there was, a, there was a great deal of forethought. And I also wanted to ask you sort of how things change. It's over a brook, which means that you have, you have water issues yes. to, to be concerned about and to think through, and not just where the water goes, but where it's coming from, and how long it's going to stay there, and what if, we, what if we did get rain in L.A. every now and then? What, you know, what happens then? So I'm curious, when you, when you approach a project like this, how did you approach it from a, a futurist perspective, from a bone structure from a craftsmanship perspective? Well, it's designed for uh, the so-called 100-year flood. Uh, but, you know, it, it, the, the brook itself is 20 feet lower than the ground level. 
Okay, so that's just not going to happen. But but the reality of the the, the biggest issue that we had is, um, and this is why I guess pe why people don't build a bridge house, you know, or don't think about these things. But there are great benefits to what we did. Uh, but the structure to get it off the ground was insane. So it literally is built like a bridge for a highway. So we have these really large uh, caissons, basically large um, columns that go into the ground on either side of the brook. And that's, there's a span of 65 feet. So we have a 65 foot long piece of steel, which is, yeah, it's about this width of this room that we're in right now. Um, and there's two of those. And the crazy thing is, uh, as we were doing this, we did have the crazy rains. You know, we, we did get stuck with the first time that there are really bad rains. And so as we're digging for these foundations, they're collapsing on themselves continually as it keeps raining. And uh, even though you do like all the geological tests, there was more uh, wet soil than we had anticipated to get the thing off the ground. So it was a little difficult and it was a big challenge in just getting it started. But the benefit and the beauty of it is the fact that uh, this design, and if you can imagine in your head, if you have uh, a really long rectangle and in a typical condition, you would have your home in the front portion of it. And so you would have a typical suburban resolution of front yard, home, large rear yard. And the connection between nature is obliterated in, in essence. All you have is windows looking out into nature, but you're not one connected to it. By taking all of that, let's say three-story structure, smushing it down into a really long slender piece that goes the whole length of the project, there's no more notion of front yard, rear yard, it's just nature and house. And that to me was one of the things that was uh, really important about the project and about Bridge House. And when I actually did have a talk on, on, uh, with uh, Francis Sanderton on, on DNA on NPR. And that was one of the things that I mentioned was that in LA, the architecture scene just needs to think about this more. And we need to have our, uh, even our developers, our architects, homeowners, instead of just, hey, let's plop on whatever we want to do, we have to think about how is the land used. And in this case, you know, there's, uh, it would be it would it wouldn't be seen as a developer wouldn't necessarily have gravitated towards that solution, even though that solution works the best in that condition. Doesn't that kind of go back to the original concept that we were talking about about you know L.A. and experimentation? When when Dan and I were talking before, one of the stories that comes to mind is Wallace Neff and the concept of the bubble house. If you're not familiar, you know World War II. You got all these GIs who are coming back to Southern California. Wallace Neff, who builds these large, luxurious, grand structures, wants to solve a social issue because there's a housing crisis. Sounds familiar, right? So there's a housing crisis. So he thinks, you know what? He, let's do this. Here's an idea for a new concept. We're going to basically turn a swimming pool upside down. We're going we're gonna to sheet it in metal. Right. We're going we're to gunite it. We're going to create a house out of it. He thought, this is brilliant. I'm going to make 300, 400,000 of these homes. Wound up making 25,000 of them. And he died in the last one. It's still in Pasadena. Correct. They're hideous. They look like burritos. You know, that's what they look like. But it's a good idea. It's modern. It's, it's not wasteful. What's the difference between brilliance and a burrito in Pasadena? 
Well, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it does answer uh, to a question. And, you know, and I, I think that's what intrigues me about architecture and design in general. So, you know, there's a problem and there's a solution. And how do we come up with the perfect marriage of the two? Uh, and maybe that idea should have been, you know, it didn't work out aesthetically as it, as it best it could have. And maybe it's a, it's a condition of, you know, taking the engineering mind and figuring it out together with an architect who could put it together and uh, process it in a way that we can actually accept, which is really important. But the case study movement was the same thing, you know, and, you know, we, we have these celebrated homes uh, by Pierre Koenig, you know, in, up in the Hollywood Hills. And it's a small home by today's standard. It's less than 1,500 square feet, 1,200 square feet. When we see it right now, when we see the photos of it, people assume that that was a luxury home because right now there are luxury homes there. It was not designed as a luxury home at all. It was designed as a GI solution to a problem. And uh, we're not thinking about these things. And one, you know, one, I remember actually, even when I was in undergrad, I, uh, we were given a project and it was out close to, when, when the red line was starting to get built. And uh, the idea was to build, it was a multifamily unit that we were supposed to design. And it was a, what's called integrative studio. And where you start to finally figure out about structures, uh, mechanicals, all of that. And we were tasked to design um, apartment buildings. And it was one block south of one of these, uh, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, subway stations. And LA is so strange is because you have, a, you have a main artery, a corridor, let's say Wilshire, and you go one block south and it's all of a sudden suburban and it's bizarre. And so my, my, my thought was, why are we taking these amazing street corners, de-densifying them, and we have all these all these conditions where you have these L-shaped mini malls, right? And they're just like kind of open, one story. And we need to think about a way to actually condense and figure out to have a multi-use function. And my idea was, okay, well, you know, our lot was behind the mini mall and we were supposed to build 50 units there. I thought, well, do you have this L-shaped mini mall? Why not build on top of it? And so my idea was to create a structure, a superstructure, a steel structure that would basically clamp on top of, let's say, you, you know, we you have your 7-Eleven and all that stuff, and you have your, uh, your proposed uh, metro stop, build on top of it, and then the area behind it that was supposed to be the housing could become park, right? And we have to think about these conditions, but in order to solve these problems, we need to also have a city that's open to accept these conditions. Totally agree, and I, it's funny, one constant, and it doesn't really matter who you talk to in the industry, everyone agrees, that the system is flawed. Completely. Um, and we're certainly not going to fix that here. But I will tell you one thing. Every year, I do go to the uh, County of Los Angeles, and, and I talk to them about the state of architecture and the state of, of residential housing in Los Angeles. They've actually done, with these historical POVs, they've done a lot to sort of quantify and qualify what's where you know, how to save what's worth, worthy of being saved. I think the point is that they're starting to. Last thing, last question I had for you, and I just sort of wanted to cover this. Your philosophy on, um, your quote was excited for not having waste. And I, I like the idea that the way you work is to minimize the amount of waste in, in the process. And I think that that goes, that sort of checks off so many boxes. Sustainability, yes, you know, using what you need, not what 
you know, what you're capable of putting there, you know, and making it so that it's, it is sustainable, it is valuable, it is exactly what you want it to be, but only what you want it to be. Absolutely. So, and, yeah, I mean, I, and, and again, I, I, we go back to where I grew up and how it all got started in a way. Growing up in Tel Aviv, uh, uh, utilities were very expensive. You can understand, you know, so to take a hot shower, you actually didn't heat the water through your typical means. We would have on the roof, you would have literally your big, uh, uh, you know, whatever, 50 gallons of water, but then it would just travel along a plate. Imagine like a, a, a serpentine a tube going back and forth over a black paint. That's it. Very, very, very simple. You would flip a switch, it would open up the valve, and the water would fall down, and it would get heated by that point. And you'd have your 15 minutes of fame, 15 minutes of shower time, and that's it. Uh, and so I grew up with that in mind, okay? So I always think that resources are not abundant, and what could we do? So one of the things that I do in my firm in order to simplify, for example, when you work with a material, okay, let's say you have a slab of Caesar stone, a countertop, very simple. It could come in four by 10 sheets, four by eight sheets, sorry, five by 10, whatever it is. We don't do, oh, well, we'll have the powder room in gray, we'll have this room in pink, and we'll have this room in that. Every time you do that as a designer, an architect, homeowner, whatever you do, that's waste. Because you're still buying the raw material in a full-size sheet. So if you could think about how you actually do that when you're designing, that's incredibly resourceful. So literally on every project that we do, we have a layout of the materials that we work with and how they're going to be used in there. And with Bridge House, it goes to an extreme. Because it was built using a system and a kit of parts, and it's not a prefab home and it's not a modular home, but it's a new system of parts, um, the raw material that's supplied there stayed there. There was no, we didn't have trash bins, we didn't have anything taken away from it. So in a typical construction, again, it goes back to, let's say, a four by eight sheet of plywood. You have uh, work people on site who cut that down into a four by four, whatever. Here, everything showed up that size, ready to drill, ready to install, ready to go. And we still have, and I was talking to another friend of mine who's a product designer, why do we use drywall still? And I need to think about that, and that will be like my next like resource question because that's extremely wasteful, and it's 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 a bad resource. Just a quick follow up: when when you think about Bridge House, is is that is that something that you would ever consider? You said it's not a kit of parts, but would you ever consider that being sort of a modular model? A kit, I mean, modular has such a bad yeah. connotation, right? It really yeah. it does because it says it's not custom at all. But is, is that something that you think about? Absolutely. For me, one of the, I take that connotation exactly. When, and, you know, when, when we talk about Bridge House, I make sure that people don't say modular home or don't say prefab home because it has that connotation. So the biggest challenge was when, when the company Bone Structure approached us was can it still be DBA? Can it still be our own ethos? And if not only can it, will it be better? And it has become better because of that. And that's what, and it solved a lot of problems. And it got us to, uh, you know, to think about uh, architecture differently and to be way more cognizant about our built world and net zero and green technologies. So 
Um, I do look forward to using this system again, though I also say that this system is not going to answer every single problem in every single site. So we are very much site specific. So I'm not, you know, closing my doors on any given point. Totally. Way to answer the question exactly on both sides of it. It's perfect. Thank um, you. Yeah. Um, so thank you very much, you guys. Thanks for joining us today. you got a lot of places that you could be, but thank you for coming you, here to you. sit with us for a while. I just want to remind you, Convo by Design, everywhere you get your podcasts, it's free. We're going to start loading up these conversations. So if you missed any part of it or you just want to go back, hear it again, or download it, send it to someone you love, you can do that too. Um, I'm Josh Cooperman with Convo by Design. We are presented by Snyder Diamond. The space was designed by Julia Wong. And I would very much like to thank my guest, Dan Broom. Thank, thank you, you so much, much for having me. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. Take care. Convo by Design is proud to be working with Vendome Furniture. Design culture, it's the key to their success. It's what pushes them to consistently create new collections that give spaces a new dimension. They create dialogue between environment and form. Vendome pieces can transform the simplest space into one filled with glamour that is both unique and extraordinary. And isn't that what design is all about? Creating atmospheres where you can take hold of life and enjoy it to the fullest? Vendome products are simple and elegant, contemporary and exceptionally comfortable. Their crafted, modern, durable, molded resin, glass, and metal designs are unique and they beg to be enjoyed. They search the planet for the right designers that embody the Vendome spirit and work together to create remarkable pieces into an exclusively Vendome mode of expression. And if you haven't seen Vendome before, you can check them out in uh, some of the Convo by Design videos you'll find on our YouTube channel. But you can find them in their showrooms at the D&D Building in New York, Wynwood in Miami, and the Pacific Design Center here in LA, or online at Vendome.com.